Hey everyone, welcome to a brand new episode of the Behold Podcast on the Genre Equality Channel. I'm Hitzer, and it's that time of the year <laughs> where we decide the best football team on the planet, uh, and also the best TV shows in the world right now. Um, have you been watching the World Cup, by the way? Uh, I, I haven't actually. I've been checking the results and all of that. I just have a lot of mixed feelings about the World Cup and where it's being staged and the whole FIFA thing, so... Uh, of course, of course. Yeah. Like, yeah, I mean, it, it was the same with the previous two uh, venue locations as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then all that controversy and all the, you know, human rights abuses tend to get forgotten the second, uh, it, uh, the first kickoff, the first whistle blows. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, like, at uh, the end of the day, like, uh, the, the sport itself, right, or, or rather, like, sports in general is, is, is kind of, like, universal language. Yeah. Uh, super happy to find out that uh, Korea and Japan made it to the uh, knockout stages. Uh, I also heard that Japan just got knocked out, uh, unfortunately, dating this episode. <laughs> Korea as well. We got demolished uh, by Brazil, Brazil 4-1. Yeah. Yeah, um, that is unsurprising in any way. But uh, yeah, uh, I was at a friend's house watching uh, the Korea Brazil match, and by halftime, I was like, "Yep, this is it. I think I'm gonna go home and sleep." <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, like it would have been tough for any country. Uh, but like, kudos to Korea and Japan for making it that far uh, mm-hmm. with everything. Uh, I think that was kind of like the highlight. Oh, they made it in awesome, right? Like, uh, shout out to them. Shout out to Morocco as well, the only other Asian team yeah. in the, the final final 16. Uh, so, hey, yeah. uh, I hope Morocco stays, but they're facing Spain, so Ugh. boy, what an uphill battle. Yeah, that's going to be uh, Yeah, but I mean, speaking of shouting out uh, Japan and Korea, lots of Japanese, well, at least one Japanese and Korean show will be in our top 10 yes, exactly. best shows of 2022. <laughs> uh, but for the first part of the episode, we won't be delving into our top 10 just yet. If you recall, back in June, we talked about the four best new shows mm-hmm. of 2022 for the first half. Yeah. Uh, in keeping with that, so we're going to be talking about the four best new shows of 2022 on the second half, mm-hmm. in the back half. So yeah. the, the requirements is June to December onwards, okay? Mm-hmm. So uh, if, if we don't mention things like, you know, uh, Omar Vep or whatever, or We Own the City, keep in mind, we already talked about it on a previous Behold episode. That's true. So go back to our June, uh, go back to our archives, check out our June episodes. That's where we talked about the best new shows from the first half of 2022. We're mm-hmm. delving into the second half right now. Yeah. Uh, let's begin with The Bear. Uh, boy, um, <laughs> The Bear follows uh, a talented, successful, fine dining chef named Carmen, uh, played by shameless star Jeremy Allen White, yeah. uh, who returns to his hometown Chicago neighborhood to take over a dingy, beef sandwich shop after his brother who had been running it uh passes away uh due to suicide um yeah this is without a doubt uh one of the most anxiety inducing tv series i have ever seen um it nails the the safdie brother stone that it was (laughs) definitely going for yeah um the, the mayhem and the din of flaring short tempers uh you know what happens behind the scenes of restaurants it is is nothing short of a continuous miracle that these chefs get it done you know um and there's so much pandemonium going on and and, and this show just puts you 
right into it, you know. Uh, it may not be a Michelin star restaurant. It may just be a, 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 a grungy sandwich shop. Uh, but these chefs and, and sous chefs and everyone around them uh, take their product seriously. And that's where the conflict comes in, specifically yeah. from Carmen, who wants to institute a new uh, a new order to the disorder uh, from his brother's regime, uh, much to the chagrin of uh, his previous staff. Um, the bear right now... Uh, Available on Disney Plus if you live in Singapore. Uh, but if you live in America, obviously it's on Hulu slash FX. Um, yeah, I mean the the bear has been probably one of the few shows that really doesn't need our shout out because um, yeah. when when I picked this very 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 early on, uh, so <laughs> this is definitely going to be like you know one of the best new shows of, of the year. Certainly in the top four in the second half, I thought. Yes, back sure. all the way back in June, mm -hmm. I I didn't figure that it would become this this sort of like overnight cult summer hit. Uh, yeah. this sleeper hit that it became a bit like how you know um Ted Lasso suddenly became this this pop culture phenomenon like a couple of years ago. Uh, the bear obviously you know the anti Ted Lasso very very different. Yeah. Uh, but has 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 captured the imaginations of the public in in the midst of this you know wave of like IP uh, um you know um revivals reboots remakes uh just more IP driven content. Uh, but it was this tiny little eight episode show. Mm -hmm that seemed to take summer by storm uh were you surprised by that and and what do you think about the bear once you eventually got onto the bandwagon oh yeah uh, i mean uh i i caught the bear not not as early as you uh when it came out uh but just slightly after you were telling me uh, about like the entire premise and uh, in particular like how much how much of like the safety uh safety brothers vibe that it came out there mm -hmm. so uh now that it's available on disney plus i went to kind of like rewatch the first episode specifically because like i love the first episode Right, like there's so much good, good stuff. It is the most anxiety-inducing first episode I have in recent memory. But it is, it is, uh, to me, it's one. It's it's like a near perfect first episode because it sets the tone for the entire series. Right, like everything that you will need to know, almost everything that you're gonna need to know immediately is given to you within uh, uh this the system. Uh, which is the title of the first episode, you know, uh, whether or not it's the stresses, whether or not you're establishing that the fact that they are struggling or they've got uh, money problems, it uh, has very kind of like clear-cut uh, relationships and dynamics that are going on between the characters, despite the fact that you don't know them that well yet, like it's very clear, uh, especially mm -hmm. in the kitchen itself, right? Like what, what the dynamic kind of is. And that um, sets the expectation for what you're going to see. And then later on in the season, uh, both meets, exceeds, and subverts those expectations in like very masterful uh, storytelling and character work. You know, uh, yep. really, really enjoyed the bear overall. I, was, I have been shouting out the bear a fair bit, especially to like friends who are in like uh, the restaurant industry uh, who have come mm. back to say that uh, it, it feels a little too close to home, but overall they didn't yeah. enjoy it. Uh, well, yep. Yeah, so I, I think like uh, it it's unsurprising that it got uh, the kind of uh, uh, the the kind of like uh, hype and the success that it did uh, after debuting in, in just in June, right? So making this what one of the older ones on the list uh, as far as yeah. our six month timeline goes. Definitely, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, b besides Kami, who is such a, a magnetic character from from the get go. Yeah. Um, fill, filling in the margins of the show is also um, Kami's brother. Uh, his his brother is named Mikey, the, the one who passed away. Uh, yeah. So his his brother's best friend is the manager of the restaurant. He's named uh, Richie. 
Uh, you may also recognize him from Andor. He was one of the, mm-hmm. the rebels in the, in the Aldani heist. Uh, yeah. Ibon Mos Bakrak. Uh, he detests Kami's pretentious attitude. Uh, then we've got Sydney, uh, who is an accomplished chef in her own right, who wants to learn from Kami. Uh, and a slew of like uh, grunt line workers who aren't interested in wearing matching aprons or following orders from a relative newcomer uh, in yeah. India eyes. Um, yeah. If the premise sounds like it could be a bit of a sitcom, you're not wrong because this is kind of a dramedy too. Um, yeah, yeah. A lot of the humor comes from the chaos and the conflict as well as the tension. You know, it's not just uh, people shouting at each other. Sometimes it's funny. Uh, yeah. But the tone and intensity with which it's told, you know, honing in on Carmi's perspective and utilizing overlapping dialogue, something that a lot of scriptwriters don't tend to do, Yes. Uh, induces this claustrophobic feeling that makes it feel far more serious than it would from from any other screenwriter, and it's kind of now a given. Uh, even even the the layman knows that culinary based shows aren't going to be sunshines and roses because oh, yeah. you know we've seen Gordon Ramsay's Hell's Kitchen, we've seen <laughs> Kitchen Confidential, we've seen the darker side of the industry, yeah. and and the bear certainly shares some tonality with those shows, but also subtly folks fun at the idea that every kitchen has to be an aggressive atmosphere. That's something that Sydney talks about. Like, we don't have to be this way. The yeah. toxicity doesn't need to be there. Yeah. Um, Carmen's sensibilities, like introducing a hierarchy into the kitchen, yeah. feels stifling for a crew who treats the job as a paycheck and not, you know, their life's work. It's not a work of art. You mm-hmm. know? They, they, they enjoy each other's companies and they just like to cook. And their fanatic energy is a byproduct of Kami kind of taking this role a little too seriously. Uh, a part of it is his grief. A part of it is resentment towards his brother. Yeah. And and trying to transform the sandwich shop into something much bigger than it was ever destined to be. And but it was the clash of the two worlds uh, that is fascinating to watch in real time um, yeah. as, as the show unfolded. Uh, I'm, I'm not talking about the real-time episode that the show had, which is <laughs> spectacular, by the way. Yeah. Uh, single, a single take uh, half an hour episode that was amazing mm. uh, but yeah yeah, it, it, that particular episode really uh, signifies or hones in it's a microcosm of what the show is like. it ups the empty and the intensity of the kitchen yeah. and it guides the audience through the chaos in, in real time as I mentioned yeah. uh, but like, like I said like the charm of the show isn't the conflict the charm of the show is the relationships yes. like Richie and Carmi are both grappling with grief and the loss of Mikey and their personalities are completely at odds with one another. Mm-hmm. Um, Richie despises Kami's holier-than-thou attitude and the fact that Mikey didn't trust him in the shop uh, and Kami clearly thinks of Richie as uncouth. Mm-hmm. Uh, they couldn't be more opposite in demeanor but it's their love for Mikey that holds them together uh, and manifests in their own kind of slightly repressed, very, you know, uh, straight men repressed ways. It's... it's as much a show about grief as it is about masculinity and about running a sandwich shop. Uh, and yeah, um, everyone's committed to their roles. I really love Sydney. I really loved uh, Richie, uh, weirdly enough. Also, he's such a well-developed character. Uh, despite him being, you know, bombastic and aggressive, he usually <laughs> sucks the air out of the room, right? Yeah. Uh, but the characterization, I think, works well against Kami and, and the, the rest of the people mm-hmm. uh, as, as well. Yeah. Uh, what do you think about the characterizations, the relationships, oh, and man, how the show evolved uh, throughout the eight episodes? Yeah. 
I, I, I really loved these characters. I, I was invested very early, right? Like midway through the present. Mm-hmm. Okay, there's there's like some dynamite going on here. Let's let's see where this goes, right? Uh, and yeah. part of me uh, watching how the characters kind of interacted, I said, okay, there's plenty of stuff here that needs to be unpacked. First of all, but it also watched like watching a, a train wreck happen in real time, uh, and it's mm. kind of look away from that because these are interesting characters, right? And I think that um, the pacing of the series overall has a fascinating way of like keeping you hooked with balancing both the conflict and the anxiety of that with these very, very singular uh, character moments, right? With deep kind of like personal stakes and 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 uh, trauma, grief, and, and just overall drama. Um, mm. I, I want in particular to kind of shout out uh, John Bruntal playing Mikey. Uh, I think that uh, for mm. large portions, we keep hearing about Mikey, right? And like, we, it, until the point like John Pondo shows up to play Mikey, like you have to kind of fill in uh, the blanks, right? Like he is a presence there that is at, at once, uh, you know, in the minds of everybody there at the beef, at, but at the same time, like he's altogether absent until uh, until that portion. And when he shows up, it's perfect. Like it makes total sense. Like everything that you've seen before that, you know, and he's not that mm-hmm. he doesn't have that much. Uh, to come begin with, also uh, Joel McHale for the uh, for the terrifying, terrifying like couple of minutes that he's on screen, just as the yeah. uh, abusive uh, uh, um, Kami's old um, executive chef. Uh, wow, yeah. like uh, that and all the kind of like flashbacks uh, to that period of his life, Kami's period uh, life is was ugh, terrifying. Mm. Uh, really, really love um, what's her name, Tina. I really, yeah. really love Tina. Like she has like, kind of like the best, uh, kind of like one-liners and responses uh, among the characters as well. Um, mm-hmm. I think my favorite character is Sydney, who seems like the most well-adjusted, most sensible person amidst all these like big characters and and drama that's kind of going on. Uh, so like yeah. it's such a great mix, and like you come to at the end of eight episodes uh, with even before. The resolution, right, uh, of the show. Not to spoil anything uh, for anyone out mm-hmm. there who hasn't watched it yet. Uh, but you are... Uh, it's such a great mix of characters and they are completely understandable. Everybody has a moment to kind of, like, shine and to kind of... of uh, despite only being eight episodes, you have an opportunity to grasp, like, what's essential about their character and what they're about, right? And that's hard to do, mm. you know, with such a short overall runtime. Uh, so like, like kudos to to um, the writers. Uh, this was a ride, and um, as much as uh, we we say that it is anxiety inducing, right? Like the payoff is mm. more than worth giving this a try, for sure. Definitely, definitely, yeah. Um, please, if you are one of the few people who have not seen the bear just yet, uh, it's available on Disney Plus. If you live in America, it's available on Hulu. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have a subscription to cable, you can watch it on FX. Uh, plenty of options for you. Go watch the bear. It's eight half-hour episodes. Essentially, it's four hours long. Yeah. Um, you know, it's 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 shorter than the Snyder Cut. Go watch <laughs> it. You can you can uh get this. You can get through it in one sitting if you have uh, tenacity Ooh, yeah. to to endure <laughs> the anxiety for for that long. But yeah, yeah. there you go. Uh, yeah, the, the bear. Uh, still one of the best new shows of twenty twenty two, even six months later. Mm. Yes. Uh, next up, I'll be going to 
uh, Amazon Freebie. If you've not heard of Amazon Freebie, it's the free version of Amazon Prime. Uh, and there is a new show on there called High mm-hmm. School that I want to talk about. It's it's my second pick for the best new shows of 2022 in the second half. Uh, as titles go, um, it doesn't get more generic than High School, which could suggest anything from a parody to a <laughs> high-minded documentary to um, any sorts of high school dramas and or musicals. Um, but yeah. what it probably doesn't suggest is what it actually is. It is a tender portrait of two teenage girls that draws its strength from its neck for unvarnished details and its uncommon sense of empathy. Yeah. It also just so happens to be a music biopic of sorts, uh, given that it's adapted from Canadian indie pop duo Tegan and Sarah's mm-hmm. memoir of the same title. Uh, but to be honest, you don't have to be able to name a single tune of theirs to appreciate high school on its own merits. You don't have to be a Tegan and Sarah fan. You just have to be familiar with that uniquely adolescent pain of realizing that growing up can sometimes mean growing apart from those you loved, even your twin. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Hopefully, you can find your way back again or at least open to letting high school's lovingly detailed experience uh, kind of engross you in it. Um, if you've ever seen something like My So-Called Life, uh, this is the best, sh- probably ser- spiritual sequel to My So-Called Life that, that I've ever seen. Mm. Um, it is set in the mid-90s, mm. uh, and as indicated by pitch-perfect period details, you know, like the wallet chains uh, swimming, swinging from characters' hips, you know, and things <laughs> like that. High school finds identical twins uh, Sarah and Tegan navigating uncharted territory in more ways than one. Uh, practically speaking, they're starting grade 10 uh, in a new school uh, in suburban Calgary, away from all the kids that they've grown up with. More challenging, more challenging though, is the distance that sprung up between them over the summer. Um, Sarah apparently has started ditching Tegan in favor of more time with her best friend, Phoebe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the more Sarah pulls away, the more tightly Tegan seems to cling, uh, prompting Sarah to pull away more firmly still. Um, the showrunner, uh, Claire Duval, who also directed most of the episodes, uh, and, and uh, the creator, Laura Cottrell, have an eye for tiny details that define these girls' interior arcs and the intersections between them in a way that you rarely see on television. Mm -hmm. The the camera seems to recognize when Tegan and or Sarah uh, have crushes before they themselves do. Um, And it it certainly notices when Sarah stubbornly refuses to look at Tegan because she's mad or when Tegan uh, uh, breaks unwritten hierarchies that guides the school's social scene. There is so much about it that is unspoken and... Uh, acting and directorial wise, I would say it's very similar to um, Never Really, Sometimes, Always. Oh. Uh, although obviously the, the topic is very, very different. I'm just saying yeah. like in terms of style, it's very similar to that. Mm-hmm. In terms of tone, it's more similar to My So-Called Life. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the actresses who play them uh, are really, really good. They, ha- they, they come in with very, very precise performances of their own to the point where they can you can tell which one is which mm. without any differentiation in clothing or music tastes or hairstyles because these two sisters are actually very, very similar. Uh, this, this two actresses, the, the Gilliland sisters, were actually discovered by Tegan and Sarah on TikTok. Oh. Uh, although you wouldn't know it from their very, very naturalistic performances mm-hmm. or their effortless charisma. 
neither Tegan nor Sarah is much given to over-explaining themselves, but the actresses can speak volumes with just body language and micro-expressions, and that's the show's real masterstroke. Um, another really, really good thing about the show is its structure. Um, every half-hour installment is split in two, with each half following a different character uh, through the same events. So the first episode is actually very, very predictable. Our first half follows Tegan, mm. and the second half follows Sarah. But sometimes the first half follows Tegan and Sarah, and the second half follows their girlfriend and her boyfriend. Mm -hmm. Or the second half follows their parents, or one of their parents. And there's even an episode that doesn't follow Tegan and Sarah at all. It just follows uh, their, the mother and father. Um, so yeah, it, it, it's, it's really, really great. And it's more than just a gimmick. It's the, that bifurcation is the key to high school's rare emotional sensitivity. And the shift of perspective is what allows it to become very, uh, very fully fleshed out. The stories contained in these halves are often ones, uh, you know, kind of shot through with loneliness and anxiety as characters struggle to understand what's changed in their relationships or withdraw into themselves rather than open up to their loved ones. Um, we've all been in positions where you sense something is wrong with a friend or a girlfriend or a boyfriend or a mother or a father or a brother or a sister, right? But you never quite know what's wrong and your reactions to them not telling you makes you also anxious and also aggressive but you know the second half of the episode that flips to the other person's perspective really allows us to see what these characters can't or won't understand uh when they are unable to express it um yeah, yeah. This, this is all really really great and it, it crucially also force, forces us to regard sarah and tegan as separate entities rather than as a singular set of twins something that i'm very very used to doing being a fan of their music um mm -hmm. at exactly the same time they're starting to explore who they might be as individuals, who they are apart. Like, Tegan is Tegan and Sarah is Sarah. They're both discovering different things. They both have different likes and dislikes. Uh, and they both have a different sets of friends. Uh, eventually, of course, we do know that their path will converge around music, clearly. Spoiler alert. Um, though high school kind of sidesteps the usual overwrought cliches about prodigies or the destiny for musical stardom and things like that. On the contrary, mm -hmm. when we follow Sarah to a piano lesson, the teacher kind of winces at her atrocious, very unpracticed playing. Uh, and mm -hmm. by the end of episode three, uh, the Queens haven't so much as picked up a guitar. Like the first half of the show is not music at all. It's just about their lives, you know. Yeah. And the series takes a subtler approach of weaving their influences into the plot. Uh, the, their, the things that they listen to, you know, their, their, you know the CDs that they are fond of, um, whole and watching Bjork get interviewed on TV mm. or uh, skipping school to go to a Green Day concert. Uh, in those moments, they could be anyone. Uh, they could become anyone. They could be you. They could be me. It's a very relatable sort of show. And reality has already sort of laid out the path for them, but Tegan and Sarah don't know that at this point in time. And high mm -hmm. school isn't eager to rush them there. It isn't even eager to get them to a guitar. Uh, instead, it offers them the understanding and space they need to become the fullest versions of themselves. And in doing so, tells a story that former teenagers anywhere uh, of teenagers right now, whether they are rock stars <laughs> or whether they're not, might yep. be able to connect with. Uh, it's, it's the universal appeal of it that, that is beautiful. And come to think of it, maybe its very generic universal title makes perfect sense after all because it could be high school for any one of us. Yeah. This is not a sex education. This is not a euphoria. This is not a heightened high school environment. This is as real as it gets. And I know it because I've done all the things that Tegan and Sarah have done at that point in time. Mm -hmm. I listen to the same bands. 
we are all of the same age. I did the same things. I got angry at the same things. I got anxious at the same things. Yeah, it's it's very it's relatable in a way that Ladybird is is relatable. Um, so yeah, um, very very highly recommended. Go watch it on Amazon Freebie. Uh, yeah, uh, you should uh, check it out also, Isaac. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, like, uh, when when you first told me about it, I was like, yeah, I really want to check it. And it's just unfortunate I haven't got to it yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, great. Uh, number three though. Let's move on from fiction to something slightly stranger than fiction. Uh, <laughs> this is non-fiction. Uh, yeah, uh, we are here to talk about Nathan Fielder's new show, uh, The Real Soul. Uh, over the past decade, um, cringe comedian Nathan Fielder has satirized the reality television formula to hilarious heights of absurdism. Um, from pitching outlandish business ideas to struggling companies, on his very, very acclaimed Comedy Central series, Nathan For You, mm-hmm. through his own production work on the observational docuseries, How To With John Wilson, which we've also reviewed, um, Fyodor has this uncanny knack for using a facade of deadpan obliviousness mm-hmm. and awkward insecurity to expose the sorts of behavioral quirks and unsightly warts of self that people try to hide. And in many ways, Fyodor's outrageous stunts and surreal comedy does a better job of helping us understand the modern human condition than the contrived setups of actual reality TV. Mm-hmm. Likewise, his latest show, The Rehearsal, is yet another masterpiece of meticulous planning spiraling into spontaneous chaos that seeks to uncover the root of people's and Nathan's own anxieties through the guise of helping others. The Rehearsal, like all of Yoda's work, is not quite what it seems at first. Uh, it is described as a series about the lengths one man will go to to reduce the uncertainties of everyday life. <laughs> this brilliant six-part HBO docu-comedy follows Fielder as he attempts to help random strangers via strategic partnerships. So rather than functioning as a weirdo business consultant, he is now more akin to a life coach, striving to prepare his subjects for uncomfortable confrontations. Uh, um, you know, things like... Um, professional confrontations, marital confrontations, parental confrontations, or futures. And he does this by staging elaborate rehearsals. Uh, The supposed goal of the show is to help real people prepare for difficult conversations or big life changes by putting them through a practice sessions with actors posing as their loved ones, posing as their friends, posing as bystanders. Um, In the pilot episode, for example, called Orange Juice No Pulp, um, a geeky New York New Yorker wishes to confess to a prickly member of his bar trivia team that he doesn't have an advanced degree. Seems a simple enough confession. But in Fielder's hands, this scenario necessitates, among other things, the literal construction of a bar identical to the one that he frequents in Brooklyn, housed in a <laughs> warehouse, populated by background actors who've been directed by Nathan to agonize over their own motivations despite the fact that they're just background actors. This is even before his client is forced to go through variations of the evening multiple times, hundreds of times, in order to be prepared for every possible scenario. Um, In the show's most daring thing, um, Angela, a 44-year-old living in Oregon, participates in the show's most elaborate and ludicrous rehearsal. Uh, To help her decide whether or not to have children, Fyodor concocts a plan that will allow Angela to simulate raising a son from his birth to his 18th birthday over the course of just two months by using child actors. 
Um, each week, this kid dubbed Adam, ages three years. Um, adding to the chaos is Oregon's labor laws, which state that people under 18 only be allowed to work for four hours, um, yeah. which means that Fielder and his team have to swap out Adams throughout the day. As they try to do it without disrupting the flow of a so-called normal day, it leads to hilarious moments like a staffer rushing up to substitute one Adam in a car seat <laughs> with another while Angela is busy putting groceries in the car. The plight of Angela and her motherhood rehearsal takes up the bulk of the first season, even as Fielder spins off to deal with other clients and other endeavors, uh, like, get this, hosting a class for potential rehearsal actors, which becomes its own rehearsal. Uh, and what arises from these scenarios is some of the most mind-bending madness you've ever seen on TV. Think a non-fiction version of Sinodaki, New York, in which Fielder yeah. and his crew plunge down this rabbit hole of mimicry until the lines between the real and the unreal hopelessly blur. Um, Fielder, I think, wants to fundamentally, fundamentally wants to understand others and through them himself. That's the impulse that drives the rehearsal, whose nominal aim is to empower individuals by so expertly predicting upcoming situations and dynamics that they can confidently ace tomorrow's big moments. It's a stab at using rigorous training to eliminate the element of chance in day-to-day -day experiences, and it turns out to be even wilder and more amusing than it sounds. Um, you've only recently caught the rear, so in preparation for this podcast, what do you think of it? Oh man, uh, I I I I don't know if I could have done as good a job, kind of like explaining like the absurdity of the rehearsal or all the absurdity mm -hmm. that it kind of becomes, right? Like mm -hmm. much like anything Fielder has kind of done, this is. First of all, I I this is I don't think it's for everyone, but mm. just kind of give it a shot, right? It will it will definitely surprise you uh with that. Like the premise itself is funny and strange and weird and it goes to the absurdest of places, but there's so many unexpected, tender, sweet human moments that feel incredibly real and um uh, they're, they're completely real and unscripted, right? And it like, hits home yes, yeah. even harder because of how absurd this show is. Uh, and mm -hmm. I, I think that take that's like kind of the main takeaway for me from watching the rehearsal, you know? Uh, just mm. how... Uh, there are many lines that are crossed in terms of what your expectations are, even from hearing the premise itself in the execution of the show. Uh, without... Yep like going into too much detail of what that exactly is right uh like i found myself constantly asking how much further fielder can go right and mm. the answer is almost always just a bit more uh and, and yeah. it really really brings us to some really uh it's strange surprising shocking uh emotional places that i did not expect when i started watching the series itself mm -hmm. um do you have a particular rehearsal that you enjoyed in the series i mean obviously the angela rehearsal is the season-long arc of the rehearsal mm -hmm. but the rehearsal i most enjoyed is his um very bizarre acting class the fielder method yeah where he teaches exactly. uh yeah that's the one that i don't i kind of I actually don't want to spoil because the yep. premise of it is even sillier and then it doubles down and triples down Yep. And it, it, it becomes a rehearsal within a rehearsal within a rehearsal where yep. Fielder is trying to analyze whether he's what he's doing is right or wrong. 
Um, yeah. And it's hard to remember where the starting point even was, you know. Um, yeah. it's, it's this artificial vortex of impersonation where life's performative aspects are highlighted and it's, it's, it's mm-hmm. incredible. Yeah, what, what about you? Yeah. Uh, it was exactly the same. I think for me, it, it was the... I think for many people, this is going to be the first point where you realize this what the, you realize the fullness of what you've gotten yourself into as an mm-hmm. audience uh, member, right? Like it is the uh, it is the threshold of absurdity before you know everything comes to a fall, right? Uh, in in terms of like the overall season itself, uh, you know, I I just love uh, that. Like it's a, re- it's almost like a review moment, like like a half review as to what exactly the direction of the rest of the season is gonna be. But it doesn't really quite prepare you for that either. But just a glimpse of that made it incredibly kind of like exciting with how, like you are, you are informed about how possibly complicated that this is going to be, right? And and what you possibly might need to wrap your head around. Um, yeah. And, yeah, yeah. Um, the feel of method was was that moment for me. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. Um. Obviously, the the show's emotional core is Angela and Adam and everything, and Nathan's own journey of self discovery, which he goes through <laughs> in Nathan for you as well. Yeah. It's 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 something that he that that his shows have always driven towards. It's mm-hmm. starts as a selfless endeavor and becomes a selfish endeavor. Um, yeah. I, I know the show's mod- modus operandi not only involves devising bizarre scenarios, but then, like I said, doubling down, tripling down on them until it's hard to remember where you started. And yeah. Fuda explores hopes and fears by deep diving into what I said, like this vortex of artificial impersonation uh, about yeah. performativeness in your behavior, about the reactive possibilities that can be examined and how uncertainties can be challenged, all in an effort to eliminate anxiety and pain. The anxiety yeah. and pain that comes from dealing with circumstances that are out of your control. That's yeah. what Fyodor wants to do. At the same time, Fyodor, who is playing a needy and insecure version of himself, becomes as much part of the real souls as the folks he is supposedly assisting. And he mm-hmm. uses these interactions to reflect on his own existential woes. And by the time the first season concludes, the real soul has transformed into a sprawling multifaceted inquiry <laughs> into the highly particular questions and concerns that spawned it in the first place. The show is like yeah. a magic trick orchestrated mm-hmm. by an eccentric nerd who's convinced that just with just a little bit more practice, he, the socially awkward man, can perfect the myriad of interactions and unforeseen events that dominate or define our lives. There aren't many comedy shows that take such ludicrous chances and ask such heady questions that the yeah. real show does, nor are they lucky enough to be led by someone like Fyodor, who is quite honestly a comic visionary who has once again turned a parody of reality TV into a brilliant dissection of human nature. Um, mm-hmm. Any final thoughts on, on the real show before we move on? Oh man, uh, I, I know that cringe comedy isn't for everyone, uh, but like the rehearsal, by the end of it, feels pretty transcendent. I'm gonna have to say, right? Like, uh, mm-hmm. it is. I think the most surprising TV show I've watched this year. Uh, and uh, give it a shot. Yeah, just give it a shot and just be prepared for a ride. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, you can catch the rehearsal if you're streaming it on HBO Go or if you live in America on HBO Max. Uh, sometimes they are rerun on 
mean HBO as well, so you can catch them on all of that. Uh, yeah, if you're a fan of Nathan for you, if you're a fan of How To with John Wilson, uh, yeah. please go out of your way to catch this show. Finally, the fourth and final one that we'll be talking about is a new show called Somebody Somewhere. Uh, now, uh, this is very difficult to describe because not much happens in HBO's Somebody Somewhere. But mm-hmm. don't let that deceive you. This comedy is a stealthy new arrival that doesn't shout out its charms, but rather lets them unfold steadily with surprising beauty. Um, it drops us into the life of Sam, who is played by Bridget Everett, uh, a woman in her 40s who has recently moved back to her hometown of Kansas. Uh, she returns to take care of her dying sister, but now that her sister is gone, she finds herself stuck and purposeless and lonely. Um, the best analog that I can give for somebody somewhere is perhaps One Mississippi, if you've seen it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but chances are you've never seen One Mississippi either, so it's very difficult to describe the vividness and sense of place and quietness of a show like this. Um, Everett plays Sam as lost and weary. She has this very morbidly boring job marking exam papers and the closest person to her is her niece, Shannon, uh, much to the dismay of uh, Shannon's own mother. Um, the first episode involves some scenes, I think, so to, to, to fill you guys in. Um, Sam's mother drinks too much and her surviving sister is a pressure cooker of emotions. Life is not so bad that it's harrowing, but the monotony is wearing Sam down. So when Sam meets a friend, a new friend, called Joel at work, uh, a hint of brightness begins to return to her life. Joel, who's played by a fantastic Jeff Hiller, uh, used to idolize Sam when they were in school together. She doesn't remember him, but they were both in what they call show choir, which I can basically assume is like Glee Club. Um, Sam was the star of a show choir, and uh, apparently her Peter Gabriel performance left a big mark on Joel. Uh, Joel is a pianist at church, and he takes Sam along to one of their secret cabaret nights he puts on there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, secret as in he doesn't tell the he doesn't tell the pastor, or if the pastor does know, he tells him it's choir practice. Uh, inevitably, Sam starts to exercise her lungs and dives back into her old, long forgotten talents. Um, small towns or working class communities sometimes seem to get a rough ride on TV. Yeah. Uh, they are treated either as crime scenes or with kind of big city disdain, but this is a truthful and affectionate portrait. Uh, Everett, who herself grew up in a small town of Manhattan, uh, not Manhattan, New York, but Manhattan, Kansas, uh, herself, uh, has described the show as like an alternate version of her life had she not moved away. And there's an intimacy in that that shines through. As a show about found family, rather than the one that we are given, this is gorgeous. Uh, Sam and Joel's friendship is honest and warm Mm -hmm. and could be just what Sam needs. If somebody somewhere sounds sentimental, um, it is because it kind of is. Sam is kind of a brittle person. She's still grieving, overwhelmed by family drama. And there are moments of cruelty and bad behavior that are painfully but sharply observed. Uh, And it does find gentle humor in the absurd everyday moments, you know, uh, things like that as well. And, yeah, the, the 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 easiest way I could I could describe it to you is one Mississippi because you've already seen one Mississippi. Yeah. Uh, but this is a this is a very quiet show that asks big questions on the sly. Uh, Sam finds herself completely untethered. Uh, she has a job that she did not want. She has a career that she did not hope for. She sleeps on her dead sister's sofa. 
her idea of a weekend is drinking wine in her pants, which sounds very lonely. Um, uh, somebody somewhere tries to answer the questions of what happens in your midlife if you're still tetherless, and it's something that can happen. You know, it's one thing to be in your late twenties or early thirties, like in say the worst person in the world, mm-hmm. and be tetherless. But it's different when you're in your forties, you know. Yeah. And and Sam feels like time is running out. Uh, it could have taken the easy path. It could have told a Rex to riches story in the same way that Bridget Everett eventually, you know, the real actress, moved out of her hometown and became a comedian. Uh, it could have told a story about sadness to happiness, of loneliness to friendship. But it chooses a bumpier road and it's much lovelier and authentic for it. Mm. Uh, and as the series progresses, uh, just like Sam, it starts to find a very remarkable voice of its own. This first season itself is perhaps very good but nothing special. In a way that Reservation Dogs was very good and nothing special last year. Mm-hmm. But I could see its second season now that it's found its voice. It could become something incredible. Like once in a lifetime kind of show. Wow. And I, I, would, I, will, I will talk about that a little bit later when I talk about season 2 of Reservation Dogs and how it's grown from season 1. But mm-hmm. I, I get the same feeling with somebody somewhere here. Uh, it may not make my top 20 shows of the year, but... Hell, um, it will one of these days, preferably in season two or season three. Hopefully, like if it gets renewed. Yeah. Um. So yeah, that was somebody somewhere. Uh. Yeah. Any uh last thoughts about uh, the things that you didn't see, like high school or somebody somewhere? Questions you want to ask before we move on to our generic top ten of the year. No, I I'm super excited to catch um high school for sure, and definitely somebody mm-hmm. somewhere. Given that glowing review and the promise of a, a even more glowing season two so uh let's let's dive in yeah yeah uh let's dive into our top 10 shows of the year not the second half but the, the year overall yeah. uh let's begin with your number 10 what is your number 10 I okay so for my number 10 uh, i pick andor uh for number mm. 10 right uh okay. i may not be our our channel's uh resident uh, star wars black belt uh that that title definitely goes to hardy uh, but yep. I loved Andor uh, just for how different it was, right? Uh, you guys can uh, go back and listen. We talked all about Andor on our last uh, genre equality episode uh, prior, prior to this behold. Uh, and uh, we dive very deep into that, but how different it was. And for the f- kind of the first time we got a really lived in view uh, perspective of, of Star Wars and the people that inhabit it and... Uh, yeah, uh, we go on and on about that in in general equality. So go ahead and check that out if you're curious what we think about it. Uh, but mm. like, just really happy to have such a uh, sumptuous, substantial uh, feeling Star Wars show uh, for the first time in a long time. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, number uh, my number ten. Mm-hmm. My number ten show is something we've actually already covered on general equality. Oh yeah, uh, season two of Undone. Uh, in season one of Undone, uh, which is uh, by uh, Raphael Bobbach's book, the creator of Bojack Horseman, mm-hmm. uh, this time he's not doing traditional animation, but it's rotoscoped. It's this rotoscoped odyssey of Alma, who, ha- who, who confronts and explores her, her Mexican heritage by, by traveling back through time to communicate with her native Mexican ancestors, yep. uh, combining the science fiction of time travel with native spiritu- spirituality alongside her own grief of losing her dad at a young age mm-hmm. and hopes that she could change the timeline by, her, by helping her dad survive. Yeah. Season 2 digs deeper into the concepts of generational trauma and cultural memory as we learn about her father's side of the family this time, uh, specifically his mother's 
his or at least Alma's grandmothers, uh, his his father's mothers, uh, escape from the Polish uh, pogroms on the eve of World War II, mm-hmm. and how her experiences during her journey to America dictated the rest of her life. Yeah. Uh, Alma is transported to an alternate dimension along with the ghost of her father, as both possess the bodies of themselves in the new reality. Uh, and they work to solve a mystery surrounding an enormous secret that Alma's mother has kept from them. So season one delves a lot into patriarchal, or not patriarchal, like trauma on the father's side. Mm. And this one delves into trauma on the mother's side. So yeah, very, very interesting show. It's some of the best animation you'll ever see, especially rotoscoped animation. Mm. Uh, some of the most trippy, emotional, and poignant storylines that you can uncover. Um, and if you've ever seen... Bojack Horseman, you know how uh, how deep shit gets, yeah. I guess. Uh, <laughs> um, and how, how you know, Raphael Bobbox likes to twist that knife in your heart. Um, and he nice. does that quite a bit in season two. Uh, so yeah, that was my number 10. Nice. Okay, cool. Uh, for my number nine, uh, there's a bunch of good animes this year. Uh, there are also a lot of animes this particular season. Uh, mm. that may may have, may have probably made the list but unfortunately they're not quite done yet uh, so I didn't really mm. feel comfortable putting that and uh, we've shouted out a couple of them already and talking about the ones we're excited about uh, but you know stick around for the next genre of quality that we're holding uh, at the uh, beginning of next year uh, to kind yep. of like dive into that in our little anime corner uh, but I picked what I think has been the most memorable so far uh, anime that has been completed. I, I picked Your Boy Kong Ming for my number nine. Uh, mm. yeah, it was just a really kind of like surprising out of left field uh, um, anime that that when it aired, I was just like, I'm not sure about this premise. I'm not sure about like whether or not it's going to be good. Uh, but it turns out that uh, at the point in time when we recommended it, it was still a bit of an underground sleeper and eventually caught on yep. to a lot of the kind of like mainstream hype, uh, which I'm glad for because people were discovering that, right, the opening title and the closing title are like complete bops, right? And that mm. it is, despite its strange kind mm-hmm. of premise, um, this uh, reverse isekai uh, where, um, uh, yeah, we, we've talked about it before. Um. Uh, it's a very heartfelt and very kind of like wholesome uh, exploration and subverts a lot of the things that we have come to know and love and hate about the, the genre uh, Yeah, specifically. So yeah, that's my pick for number nine. What about you, Hits? Awesome. My number nine is season three of Rami. Uh, we've talked a lot about Rami before, actually, oh, yeah. on a previous episode. Behold, we discussed the first two seasons. Uh, it's created by Egyptian-American comedian Rami Youssef, and his series has been a thoughtful, artful, and complex depiction of a young Muslim man struggling to reconcile his religion and culture with more contemporary millennial anxieties in the Western world. Uh, now, in its third season, the show continues to be a very nuanced and awkwardly hilarious portrayal of a very wayward, selfish, indulgent man trying to be more devout, but also coming to terms with his own self-absorbed hypocrisies and superficial grasps of Islam. Um, this third season takes you into uncharted territories. It takes you outside of New York. There are whole ass arcs set in Israel. Mm-hmm. There are whole ass episodes set in Palestine. <laughs> there is a visit to what I can only describe as a Muslim comic con that is the funniest thing I've ever seen. Uh, if you want to check it out, just a little snippet of it, go Google Majid Jordan Rami 
Uh, he performs in a band called the Halal Brothers. Uh, and he sings a song about how when you have premarital sex, Shaitan is washing you uh, in a very Majid Jordan type of way. Uh, it's it's one of the best. It's one of the best, funniest things I've ever seen. And I would, if you were to rank pound for pound, funniest scenes, or like, not funniest, best scene yeah. of 2022, yeah. that Muslim Comic Con, Muslim Convention, whatever you want to call it, is right up there at number one, oh, that particular episode damn. for me. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. And that elevates already a, a very, very good season with a lot on its mind. Uh, especially that now Rami is finding success in the jewelry business, and he has to deal with, uh, shall we say, some very shady Jews in Israel who may or may not hate Palestine, of course. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, there you go. Um, okay, another. I just want to give another very very funny scene where he's in yeah. Israel, uh-huh. and and he matches. Uh, he's on Tinder in Israel, and he matches with someone in Palestine. So he has to find a way to to cross the border. <laughs> Which becomes a harrowing nightmare on his own, just so he can get laid on the other side. Um, oh. Yeah, it's, it's Rami for you, man. Uh, oh. That was my number nine. Yeah. Cool. Uh, for my number eight, uh, we go back to something we've already covered before uh, in the early half of the year, which is we own the city. Uh, going mm. again, uh, we are going to refer you back to our June episode of Behold, where we talk about the uh, best TV shows from uh, the first half of the year. Uh, please go check out We Own This City. Uh, there's some like really kind of like tense uh, action that's going on, some amazing kind of character work as we dive into uh, the uh, the corruption uh, within yep. uh, within uh, the Baltimore the Police Department. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yes. Um, it, it's uh, written and directed by, by David Simon. So if you love The Wire, if you love everything that David Simon does, this is the David Simon joint. Yeah. Uh, go for it. Uh, this is the non-fiction version of The Shield. This is the spiritual sequel to The Wire in many, many, many ways, actually. Yeah. So yeah, uh, I, I wholeheartedly recommend that as well. Yeah. What do you have on your number eight? My number eight is a show that has just recently been sadly cancelled. Uh, it's a show called Lost as Spooky. It's a show that we have talked about also. Um, yes, it is created by yeah yeah it's it's created by Julio Torres and Anna Fabrega who both also star. Uh, Lost and Spookies is a weird and charming comedy about four friends who love horror movies and gore, so they decide to start a business of creating scares and horror scenes for paying clients. Mm-hmm. You need to stake a fake exorcism. They got you. Looking for a sea monster to attract tourists to your beachside town. They on it. This Spanish language series blends magical realism. See, there is a curse mirror. There is a parasitic demon obsessed with the king's speech. That was the first season, by the way. I'm talking about season two. That parasitic demon yeah. is no longer obsessed with king's speech because she's seen it and thinks that it doesn't, doesn't deserve an Oscar. And why was she so obsessed with it? Oh my God. She has decided to stop being a parasite. This fucking parasitic demon has decided to stop being a parasite. Has gone into the real world to find a job. And she becomes an intern at the US Embassy in, in this fictional Latin American country. Uh, an unpaid intent, mind you. Um, <laughs> so it blends uh, these really weird supernatural stories with relatable real-world stories of friendship and young adulthood. Uh, Anna Fabrega is especially phenomenal as Tati in the second season, mm-hmm. uh, who is a gentle soul who is at first caught in a fake marriage and then caught in a new career as a very, very successful author who transcribes audiobooks. Uh, so yeah, think about that sentence for a bit. Uh yeah, Lost and Spookies is that kind of show. Uh, that was my number eight. Yeah. Oh sweet. Uh, it seems for number seven we have the same thing. For my number seven, I picked Primal. 
Yes, that's my number seven as well. Uh, you can take it. Yeah, so uh, we've talked about Primal Season 1. Well, I wasn't here when we talked about Primal Season 1, but uh, we've shouted out Primal mm-hmm. Season 1 uh, in one of our genre quality episodes as well. Uh, we... Um, the world of Primal no longer is uh, wordless, but that doesn't detract from how good uh, the animation has been. Again, a uh, shout out yep. to Genny uh, Dostoevsky uh, and his excellent, excellent work in telling uh, a story about uh, uh, a man and his dinosaur. Uh, and as they kind of mm. like explore the world and meet other humans along the way for the very first time uh, since the end of uh, season one, uh, and just uh, exploring a complex relationship in the most, mm, what's the best word of it, naturalistic of ways, uh, I think is the mm. best way to go about explaining that. Um, you want something more in-depth, again, please go check out uh, our review of Primal on genre and quality. Yeah. Um, whereas season one was beautifully storyboarded and wordless and, for lack of a better term, visceral, Season 2 delves very deeply into the the themes of what it is to be primal or what it is to be savage and what the difference is between savagery in nature and savagery in civilization. Yeah. Uh, and I think because it is so endeavored to explore those themes, it breaks its own format a lot in some very interesting ways, yeah. uh, which is why like, I feel like Primal Season 2 is a more ambitious show than it was in Season 1. Uh, yeah. Kudos to Gandhi for, for doing this. What is your number 6? Uh, my okay, my number six, uh, taking it from the first half of the year, is Atlanta. Uh, nice, yeah. yeah Have really, you seen season four already? Which is even better than season three. Uh, I'm, I'm. Mm, let me see. I'm about three episodes through season four, uh, but unfortunately, okay. we can't cover really kind of cover that uh, um, within here. Uh, yeah. So I really, really love where it was with season three, uh, and mm. and I'm super excited with where it was in season four. Uh, I know they're wrapping up the show and all of that, so I'm kind of excited to see how it ends. Uh, please, nobody spoil it for me until I get there. <laughs> yep. um, but yeah, uh, Atlanta, um, well, I guess one and a half seasons of Atlanta occupies season six for me. Uh, Definitely, six, yeah. Six um, I mean, number six, yeah. Uh, season four also just recently ended. It's also its, uh, its fourth and final season. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, after this four-year hiatus, they gave us two seasons in, in one year. Yeah. Uh, one was a bit divisive because of mm-hmm. its experimentation. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, part of it follows Paperboy on a wild European tour. Um, and the second half was uh, an anthology collection of one-off stories that examined themes of, weirdly enough, whiteness, uh, a mm. theme that, it hasn't, that, that the show hasn't really explored before. Uh, as fascinating as all that was, the show's fourth and final season, I think is Atlanta's best season overall over its oh. four-season run. It, mm-hmm. it crossed a number of thought-provoking, very absurdist, very laugh-out-loud episodes about the difficulty of black artists when striving for black representation in their craft. Sometimes you can be a black artist with the most noble of intentions to represent your people, and your people will always get upset by it because you're either not representing them properly, you didn't yeah. cover this aspect or that aspect, yeah, it, this is uh, the fourth season is about the difficulty of representation, and I think that's very interesting. Uh, yeah, uh, that was your number six, right? My number six is Barry, uh, season three. Mm-hmm. Um, after a long COVID delay, uh, Bill Hader's masterpiece of a showbiz satire uh, about kind of the dark recesses of humanity it returns in excellent form. The titular hitman turned actor that Hader plays is scarier than ever 
the creator is leaning into his character's desperation after realizing that his uh, beloved acting teacher, Mr. Kusinel, uh, is aware that Barry is a killer and wants to bring him down. Meanwhile, Barry's girlfriend, Sally, is trying to go boss, uh, running and starring in her own TV show based on her experiences with abuse. Mm. And the way that she navigates, shall we say, the streaming world um, really feels like uh, the most scathing critique of streaming that I've ever seen on a TV show. Mm. Um, <laughs> she, she, she creates this really, really great show. At least it looks great um, from what I've heard in the writing room and what she's, what she's done. It looks amazing. It's 96% on Rotten Tomatoes that she likes oh, wow. to call out every once in a while. Um, but yeah, uh, because uh, the algorithm didn't push it, her yeah. show gets cancelled. Uh, apparently, the algorithm says that every first scene, uh, you need to have a character eating a dessert and people will continue to watch. Uh, it's bizarre things like that that get, got her show cancelled. Um, and her mania over it is both hysterical and tragic just like the rest of the series, which finds time for a lot of brutality and a lot of grief and trauma, but also for sight gags and a whole lot of good no-ho hankisms uh, mm-hmm. this season as well, amidst all the sorrow. So yeah, that was my number six. Sweet. Uh, let's go on to my number five, which we just talked about. I put the bear at number five. Uh, you can hit back yep. uh, a couple of minutes to go here. Let's talk about that. Definitely. Uh, yeah, uh, I think that... Um, Kind of like here, the end of the year, uh, and the bear having come out in June, uh, it's such mm-hmm. a memorable uh, series for me. Like it stands out there, and like uh, I love the fact that every once in a while, uh, when I'm talking to my friends about food and all about like the restaurant industry, like the bear automatically kind of, kind of comes up and referencing like particular scenes with that, uh, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And I, uh, it might be recency bias, but I don't think so because like I've kind of watched through it like almost twice now. Uh, yeah, really, yep. really enjoyed this series, uh, and uh, we've just spoken about why. What's your number five? My number five is a show that we already talked about on Drama Equality. <laughs> it's called Severance. Yeah. Uh, it will be making a reappearance later on on ISIS list, so I'll save the discussion for that. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, my number five was Severance. What is your number five? Uh, my... Oh, you already talked about your number five. What's your number four? Okay, my number four is Pachinko, which we talked about at the beginning of the year. Uh, one of my favorite series this yeah. year, easily just in terms of like uh, the thematic exploration, uh, this, just about the the nuance of the subject matter, just about how it's shot, the excellent performances, the uh, amazing color grading and costumes. Like uh, we go real in depth with that uh, in the uh, episode from the first half of the year. So please go check that out if you want to know more about Pachinko. Yep. Yep, definitely. Uh, so my number four mm. is Better Call Saul. Yep. Uh, it's sixth and final season just recently wrapped up. Mm. Uh, again, much like Severance, Better Call Saul will be making a reappearance later on, high up on ISIS list. So yep. I will save my discussion for that one. Uh, what yep. is your number three? My number three is Better Things, which we've uh, talked about before and also covered at the, um, in the first half of the year. Uh, as well, yep. uh, I believe, um, with the exception of your number one, we kind of have like a bunch of things that we're sharing in uh, kind of like the middle the of the pack. Five. Uh, the top five, yeah. So we can kind yep. of get to that uh, accordingly. Uh, later with, on, okay. Yeah, later on. Yeah. Cool. Uh, okay, so your number three was better things. My number three is a show called Station Eleven. Mm-hmm. Now, this is going to be a very controversial pick because. <laughs> Um, only half of its season aired in 2022, 
Yeah. And the other half of the season ad in 2021. Uh, mm-hmm. um, and in both instances, yep. it pops up at number three on my list on yep. both years. Mm-hmm. Um, if the only reason this is not at number one mm-hmm. is because I'm only dealing with half a season, so I don't feel comfortable putting it at number one as like the best show yep. like by only half a season, right? Yep. But it's so fucking good that even half of a season already outstrips other shows, in my opinion, like Better Call Saul and Severance and Barry and all of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what is Station Eleven about? It's on HBO uh, or HBO Go in Singapore. Uh, it's well, okay. It's a it's a drama about a devastating, deadly viral pandemic and releasing a drama about a devastating, deadly viral pandemic as the world is itself slowly creeping out of one of the worst health crises uh, we've ever faced in our generation. Yeah. Sounds like a fool's errand, doesn't it? Like, who wants to watch a show that hits so close to home? Yet, mm-hmm. Station Eleven is about so much more than the aftermath. It's about hope and healing, the struggle for humanity in the face of crisis, and it finds real bo- beauty in the telling, set both as the crisis starts to hit in the beginning. Uh, we follow Jeevan Chaudhry, who's just trying to survive. And then it focuses on the aftermath. After 99% of the world is devastated, we follow Mackenzie Davis as Kristen, who Mm -hmm. is an actress in a traveling theater troupe who just goes around the wasteland performing Shakespeare for people. Uh, This is done by the Leftovers' um, Patrick Somerville, uh, and is adapted from Emily um, Emily St. John Mandel's uh, much-loved bestseller. And it is one of the most beautiful miniseries I think the medium of television has ever produced. Uh, so yeah, if you like The Leftovers, if mm-hmm. you liked The Watchmen, if you liked uh, the best parts of Lost, uh, which is where all these people <laughs> came from. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, do watch Station Eleven uh, for sure because it comes from the same team. Damon Lindelof isn't there, but these are Damon Lindelof's prodigies, for lack mm-hmm. of a better term. Um, his, his writing team from way back in the day have gone on to do their own things and Station Eleven is one of them, but you can see a lot of the Damon Lindelof teachings in there, like how he taught them how to write is is all over here. So yeah, beautiful. That was number three. Let's go on to where um, are we now? We're at your number two, right? Okay, yeah, my number two. Uh, we finally get to talk about Severance. Uh, let me hit yes. the lowdown, please. Uh, yeah. Um, Severance. To be honest, the premise of Severance is it doesn't seem like it should work as well as it does. Mm-hmm. Like, it's a sci-fi thriller. Um, it has this tightly tuned performances and its ev- its score is evocative and low-key and thrilling. Um, even the concept of the show itself feels like a high-wire act. Mm-hmm. Uh, it takes place in a world where a company called Lumen Industries has allowed or more disquietingly required workers to sever their work and home identities. Um, it is trippy and methodic. Uh, after all, like what what do your work and personal life have in common beyond just happening to be the same person? Why not sever them, right? As Severance unpacks just how different those interests are, uh, and indeed just how different those people are because they have different interests, mm-hmm. the results get more and more chilling as it expertly reminds us what is actually lost even in the cleanest of work-life balances. Um what happens when your work self and personal self are severed from your identity? Uh, how would your work self feel leaving work and coming back to the next work, uh, coming back the next day to work as if no time has passed? Mm-hmm. Because you, he doesn't get to remember the time outside of work. It's it's probably the scariest concept I've ever come across. Um, 
And I've talked a lot about it on on uh, a previous episode of Genre Equality. Actually, I I gave it a ten of ten upon ten. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, me and Hadi have already talked about it. Isa hasn't talked about it. What what do you think about Severance? So uh, a a little later the game yet again. Uh, I only caught Severance after both hits and Hadi gave it a ten upon ten. Uh, yeah. For the season, oh man, uh, I I think like with how uh, it it was it was it was difficult. Uh, after watching the entire series, to kind of wrap my head around what the actual premise of the show would be like if it was in real life, right? Like the distinctions that they kind of draw uh, between, you know, your inbound life, your inny and outy life, uh, is very extremely poignant. And I think parts of me resonate with them in a way that feels a little too close to home, right? Like just needing to separate, like, uh, you know, work from the rest of your life. In kind of general, uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. Totally understand why the two of you gave it a ten upon ten. Because uh, had I been uh, uh, part of that review itself, I would have easily given it a ten upon ten as well. Yeah. Uh, next up, we are going up to my number two, which is your number three, three I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, better things. Uh, we've talked about better things before on on FX, um, mm-hmm. and we've talked about it on a previous episode of Behold, uh, at mm-hmm. length, actually. Yeah. Um, and it has sadly come to an end with its final season here this year in 2022. Um, it's a difficult show to describe. Um, yeah. In my opinion, things, uh, and its showrunner Pamela, Pamela Adlon has reimagined what coming-of-age stories can be with better mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. Uh, it moves effortlessly through teen angst, it moves effortlessly through middle age. It moves effortlessly through menopause. You are coming of age in different ages, yeah. and the twilight of the twilight years of one's life, um, you know, and, and all of it, you know, from from the youth to the middle age to menopause to to the end, and often it's 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 exploring these themes of coming of age in different parts of your age. Sometimes it, it even explores them in the same episode. But the series has remained incisive and big hearted as. It explores the, the various stages of adolescence from the perspective of uh, Sam Fox's three children uh, and the travails of working motherhood. The, Fox's, uh, the Fox family's last hurrah, yeah. in my opinion, was as glorious as it was pensive <laughs> uh, as Sam found new and gratifying way to define this latest chapter of her life. She defied the framing of loss uh, mm-hmm. kind of imposed by a patriarchal society and instead chose to focus on all she stood to gain, even as her eldest daughter moves away, yeah. her youngest is no longer cleaved to her, her mother has rekindled an old flame. Um, <laughs> as a storyteller, um, Pamela Adlon often eschews closure, but yeah. the final 10 episodes of her dreamy FX series certainly cements her as one of TV's best authors mm. and certainly delivers, in my opinion, great closure in its, in its series finale. Uh, what do yeah. you think about Better Things? Oh man, I mean like this is uh, we've talked about better things a fair bit uh, on this show, right? Uh, I re- remember very fondly going through um, I think it was the first uh, the, the first I think it was the three seasons, right? Uh, that when we first talked about it uh, and enjoyed mm-hmm. it thoroughly uh, you can go check out our episode on that itself uh, but you're absolutely right I think like in the fourth season just like very masterfully bringing all of these character arcs to, to such a satisfying uh, close is it was so well done and so I got so much satisfaction on that like many a times when things 
like good shows and you you feel as though like you are kind of like craving for more or you're looking for something you know um within the the season to kind of like round it out in a way to you uh, that that feels good and i think that mm. uh, better things does the latter so so well um it's one of the shows that i will uh, often think fondly of and you're absolutely right i still to this day struggle to explain it to other people uh except yep. that i highly recommend it and there's a high chance you will fall in love with it as well Definitely, yeah. Uh, it's available on Disney Plus if you live in Singapore, so very easy to watch. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I've covered my number two. We're moving on to Isa's number one. Yeah. Uh, it is Better Call Saul, which mm-hmm. was my number four. So mm-hmm. now we can talk about it. <laughs> uh, give us your thoughts on on the the final, not final two seasons, the two parts of its final season. Yeah. Uh, of Better Call Saul. Yeah. Um, I I was I wanted to withhold judgment until like kind of everything was done, but my hot take is that Better Call Saul. Uh, might very well be, in my opinion, um, at very least equal to or if not better than Breaking Bad. Uh, mm. Just in terms of the approach. First, that in the same role, we've got revisiting characters and all that, but there's something extremely extremely nuanced about the the way that Better Call Saul was told uh, in terms of like its pacing, in terms of its exploration of its characters, in terms of the the time that it took that I feel they learned a lot from Breaking Bad and managed to make even better, right? Uh, yep. We've talked about Better Call Saul a lot. Like, almost every season it's coming up uh, for us, uh, either for, like, a beholding or even for um, just us chatting with each other about that. Uh, we're mm. catching up with each other and, like, constantly pondering where it's going to go and how it's going to end. And now that it's done, right, I am... I am happy that uh, to, I'm happy to say that I enjoyed every moment of it. Like it mm. is so difficult to find a show that revels in the processes of its characters' lives, right? And makes it entirely immersive and enjoyable at the same time. You know, not dumbing it down, not uh, cutting it away just because you know you might feel like it's particularly boring it is the process itself that makes this interesting right uh, whether it's uh you know the process of going to court or, or, or filing your papers or you know working through your problems as a couple or uh planning a absurd little um well not heist necessarily but you know planning uh, scheming and planning Right, all of those mm. little things like it takes its time, and it is riveting to watch, and it is difficult to do that uh, at the yes. same time. And like, uh, it has been quite a ride uh, throughout this entire franchise, and I would gladly do it all over again. Mm, definitely, um, I hundred percent agree with that. Uh, let's move on to what is next? Is it is it uh, my number one? Yes, yep. it's your number one. It's my number one. Uh, I'll be talking about Reservation Dogs Season 2. Again, also available on Disney+. Uh, This comedy about teens living on a Native American reservation is so singular in its its perspective that its writers and actors uh, are so skilled at crafting near-flawless television. There is not a single weak point in Season 2 of the show. Um, And its high points, the fact that I named it number one, is actually higher than any of its of, of the other shows that I, I I've talked about here. Um, in season two, we follow uh, our friends, uh, the the crew, the Res Dogs crew, Elora, 
uh, Bear, Willie Jack, and Cheese mm-hmm. as they are confronted head-on with the uncertainty of adolescence. And it captures a very universal experience, even within the specificity of living in a reservation. Um, each episode can be wildly different from the next, tonally, structurally, stylistically, uh, but also they, they are each so different, but it's also they each fit together. It all feels like immensely satisfying steps in the overall journey of these character arcs. Mm-hmm. You know? There are some episodes that, this year particularly because the, the group has fallen out, all of them are, are doing different things. We follow in the, the, each individual doing their own thing. We follow each individual's parents, uncles, aunties, brothers, uh, even even the, the, the cop around town, yeah. each doing their own different things. Some can be magical, some can be realistic, uh, some can feel like a road trip, some can feel like a heist movie, uh, but they're all each in their own different ways. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Um, in my opinion, uh, Reservation Dogs is could have ended with the finale of, uh, of season two. Yeah. Um, it feels like it could, but there is a season three coming up, and I'm not going to doubt these writers and directors anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, the only season of TV, in my opinion, just to give you like a little a little analog about its quality, the only season of TV, in my opinion, that is as strong as Reservation Dog season two yeah. is Fleabag season two. Ooh. That's the only thing that comes Ooh. close to Reservation Dog season two, okay. in my opinion. Okay, okay. Uh, so yeah, it's 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 reached Fleabag level, which is very hard to do, shall we say? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, that was my number one uh, for 2022. I mean, awesome. Uh, we've got we've got quite a bit of uh, um, shared sh- uh, shared picks uh, this time round, uh, mm-hmm. with, just in kind of like different orders. So yeah. Yep. Um, it's it's been a good year. It's been a good year. Uh, it's been a very good year, definitely. Mm, yes. Uh, yeah. Um, we'll be back though in a couple of weeks to talk about films now uh i mean admittedly a lot of these films that we'll be talking about in a couple of weeks are on the small screen because we stream them but hey, <laughs> whatever right yeah um, and, and and there's some things like rr which i wish i had seen on the big screen uh, and top gun maverick which we did see on the big screen yep. uh but a lot of them are very uh are smaller art house dramas and things like that that we caught on vod mm-hmm. uh or on streaming services so we'll we'll keep you updated uh, about that but uh, I, I feel like we had a good crop of films this year as well. Yeah. Very, very strong. Yeah, definitely. Um, and yeah, if you if you want to check out any of these shows that we just talked about, um, please, you know, uh, go back to its section, whether it's Netflix or Disney Plus or FX or Hulu mm-hmm. or HBO or whatever. Check any of these out. I, in fact, I think like most of our top tens, yeah. um, each of them could be number one any other year, uh, there it's been a very, very, very strong year in my opinion. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I, I was looking at uh, ISIS top ten. The fact that I couldn't find a spot for Atlanta mm. is crazy to me. Yeah, because Atlanta is so good. Yeah. Uh, in, 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 um, I couldn't find a spot for Pachinko. Yeah, which is also very good and one of my favorite shows. Yeah. Uh, it, it just speaks to not that they are bad shows, but that they are so good, but still can't make my top ten. It's ridiculous. Yeah. It's been a really, really, really good year. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's we've been happy to talk to you about uh, the best TV shows of 2022. Mm-hmm. We'll talk to you about the best films of 2022 coming up next. Uh, till then, though, this has been Hit Zero. I'm Isa. Goodbye, guys. No.